This podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at placetobenation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. This is It Was a Thing on TV. Before I change my mind, I give you Super Train. Oh, Episode three twenty one, submission number nineteen forty nine, the Starland Vocal Band Show. The Starland Vocal Band Show aired on CBS from July thirty first, nineteen seventy seven, to September fourth, nineteen seventy seven for six episodes. And usually we air the theme song here, but for reasons that will become really obvious later on, we can't. Because, well, the first song that they perform on every episode, and I know this because I've watched all six episodes, is their one and only hit. That would be 1976's Afternoon Delight. We can't play it, obviously, because of copyright issues. But we can tell you about the rest of the intro of a show that was so bad that the announcer said he was glad that no one would be watching it. And the show was actually so bad that it was canceled shortly after the six episodes went to air. The announcer, on the other hand, he's done well for himself. And, um, well, I'm just going to play the intro and let you figure it out. The Starland Vocal Band. Recognize that hit? Well, tonight, the group that made it famous travels from Washington, D.C. to Malibu, California, giving concerts and performing with some of America's brightest comedians. You guessed it, gang. Behind me, a crack production crew. It's a Sunday night. What do you got to do anyway? So, gentlemen, start your tape machines. Well, that was a very young meteorologist out of Indiana named Dave Letterman. We all start somewhere, and David Letterman started on this show, which featured this group. It was a group of two couples, one married, one engaged, soon to be married, and they all have kooky adventures on the road from their native Georgetown in Washington, D.C. to Los Angeles. Now, we all know who the Starland vocal band is. We have a couple of folk singers, Bill and Tappy Danoff, and a couple of uh, rock slash pop singers, John Carroll and Marco Chapman. They all met in D.C. They formed this group, which was basically a backing group for John Denver, especially when they did Take Me Home Country Roads, which they actually performed in the first episode of this show. And they were ultimately signed to Denver's label, Windsong Records. And in 1976, the Starland Vocal Band released their debut album featuring their one 
and only hit Afternoon Delight. And anyone who's heard Afternoon Delight knows why it became as big a hit as it did. They were talking about getting some in the PM, y'all. They wanted people to do it. <laughs> they did. They in in the afternoon. Yeah. Right after lunch. Right after lunch. Work off the calories. What the hell is that? That's eugenics. And this was perhaps the biggest song of 1976. It was a number one hit in the U.S. It was nominated for four Grammys in 1977, winning two of them, Best Arrangement for Voices and Best New Artists. And they followed it up with a follow-up album, Rearview Mirror, that featured this song as well. And I guess to promote the album and the fact that this song was on the album, they struck a deal with CBS under producer Jerry Weintraub, who happens to be a manager of John Denver and, by extension, this band, to produce six episodes to air over the summer of 77. Basically would chart the adventures of the group as they road tripped their way from Washington, D.C. to Los Angeles, performing in various venues and for various audiences along the way. Now, We've covered a number of variety shows on this show. We know you can't just have one act be the star attraction without having a little bit of filler. We've seen it on Pink Lady. We've seen it in SNL. We've seen it on the Hudson Brothers Razzle Dazzle show. And... This show has its fair share of players as well. All of them just brilliant comedic minds, if you think about it. Of course, we talked about the announcer slash correspondent, David Letterman, who's basically there to drum up support for the group, chart their journey across country, and basically sow the seeds for future comedic greatness. We also have, because they are a DC-based group, the political comedy stylings of Mark Russell. And we also have, playing every character under the sun, it seems, a guy we talked about in a previous entry, Jeff Altman. He was a recurring character where he is this wild animal caretaker. He also played a farmer and a surfer, a rock and roll surfer. And rounding out the cast of this show would be the comedic team of Proctor and Bergman. Of course, Proctor would be Phil Proctor, as you all know him from Rugrats, among other things, and at least three different weeks of the match game Hollywood Squares Hour. Including the first week. Including the first week. Hey, Mike, 
let's not forget Twyla had the 30. And the 36s. Good night, everybody. Oh, God, Mike. Hey, you know, we just celebrated the 39th anniversary of the premiere earlier uh, this week as we record. So next year, we're celebrating the 40th anniversary. And Phil's partner, Peter Bergman, of course, was a known voice talent doing voices on The Tick, Everything You Know Is Wrong, which is a short film from 1975. But mostly, he is known for his writing credits. Most notably, this show, Nick Danger, The Case of the Missing Yoke, and Everything You Know Is Wrong, The Declassified Fire Sign Theater. And that's basically where uh, most of the comedy bits come from. Because if you're a big DC comedy fan, you know all about the Fire Sign Theater. And you know how uh, Peter Bergman and Phil Proctor were really big in the Fire Sign Theater. And of course, many of their bits were actually uh, videotaped from the Fire Sign Theater as we go into the episodes proper. You didn't think I'd find an episode guide? Guess what I found? An episode guide. By the way, special shout out to YouTuber Starland and more for this episode guide. Episode 1. Dave Letterman introduces the band. Tappy drives the band to a local performance. And in that performance, Dave, as a postman, reads a fan letter from somebody, and I'm guessing it was not really Barbara Streisand, but he says it was Barbara Streisand. And really, that's all the proof you need. Come on. Yeah. This is how you know it's a bit. Then we go to the Renaissance Fair with Proctor and Bergman. Right before we see the band sitting in an overgrown field sipping lemonade... And Bill and Margo do the old pie-in-the-face comedy skit where Bill is looking for somebody to throw a pie in their face. Margo goes into a fog cabinet and gets pied in the face. Then Dave interviews Rocky Balboa, played by Jeff Altman, because this is late 70s and Rocky would have been a really big thing. My God, Jeff Altman is Rocky Balboa. Jeff Altman is Rocky Balboa. They're not even in the steps in Philadelphia. They found like a stairway in Washington. They just they found any stairway. There. Any stairway. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Nobody's going to ask about this. They might as well have been on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial, and they were like, okay, this will do. Basically, yeah. You know what? I can buy Jeff Altman doing that. I can see him doing that. Didn't say he would do it well, but I can see him pulling it off. And then Bill introduces the band singing Take Me Home Country Roads while driving around and then parking across the street from the basement apartment where the song was written. And he was actually, you know, giving sort of the backstory. It was one of the uh, rare behind the music, rare educational sort of pretty awesome moments that you uh, listen to a music biography for. 
this was one of those uh, moments. And then the band performs it at Georgetown. Afterwards, the band listens outside the White House gates for, and this is going to be a recurring bit, messages from Jimmy Carter. And then we have Dave introducing the band's recording starting all over again in the studio. Again, uh, this is all leading up to their uh, release of their second album, Rearview Mirror. And then we have the collapsible SVB News, where Dave Letterman basically goes over the odds and ends that the mainstream media missed over the week. And then we have a comedy monologue by Mark Russell. Then we have the band at Pepperdine singing Friends With You. And then the band says goodnight to the audience. Before we continue, I just should let you know that they use the same footage for the intro and the outro for every episode. You see David Letterman doing the same bit about them firing up your recorders. And then you hear the same sort of comment about Tappy wanting to go get coffee after this. They don't even make an effort to try and dance around. It's like, okay, we're just putting a show together. Let's get it on the air as fast as possible. And then just whatever happens, happens. Episode two. We have the intro. Then the group performs Hail, Hail, Rock and Roll outside of Tower Records in L.A. Then we have Letterman and Altman. At another comedy bit. Then we have Tappy visiting the Fun House at Glen Echo Park, where it was supposed to be designed to be really, really scary and really, really creepy, but Tappy walks through it, and there's not really much of a reaction you get out of her. Uh, the only reaction you get is when you see this drop down prop, and then she runs out of the Fun House. Like, it's supposed to be a haunted house instead of a fun house. Now, I don't know if it's still at Glen Echo Park. Frankly, I don't know if Glen Echo Park is still there. I'll get into why this failed in a moment, but let's go over the episodes again. Then we have Jeff Altman as Merlin Parkins, who is supposed to be a send-up of Merlin Olson, who at this point would be the host of Mutual of Omaha's Wild America. Greg here in editing, I think Chico was confused because that is supposed to be a send-up of Marlon Perkins, the host of Wild Kingdom. And Merlin Olsen, obviously, is the former cast member of Little House on the Prairie slash NBC football commentator. And it's basically him doing shtick, and again, it's Jeff Altman. It either lands or it doesn't. And then we have John of the group looking for t-shirts publicizing the band from David Letterman. And he gets all of these shirts all horrendously wrong. Except for one shirt where he has the proper name of the band, but it's upside down. Then the band performs The Light of My Life at an outdoor picnic. Then we go back to the cellar door where Proctor and Bergman are doing another comedy bit. 
Then we have another bit with the bands listening in to Jimmy Carter. Then Prism is being recorded in a studio. We have the news with uh, Letterman. Another bit with Mark Russell. And then we close the show with a Georgetown performance of Rearview Mirror. Episode 3. After the intro, the group performs Everyman outdoors at what appears to be a picnic with uh, grade schoolers. Bill and Tappy are approaching rock surfer Jeff Altman, who looks like he's about to surf the Potomac River. I, 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 I can't even begin to unpack this. Then we have the news with Letterman. Another bit with Merlin Parkins. Taffy visiting the Federal Bureau of Nicknames, manned by Jeff Altman, of course. And he's basically giving her the business about the nickname Taffy. The band finally meets Jimmy Carter after hearing his messages for the last couple of weeks. The band is recording Liberated Woman at the Cherokee Studios. In this performance, you can see John tapping his foot, and Tappy's looking at him and telling him, don't do that, because we're still recording. And it's like, Margo and Tappy are basically doing the fingers-on-lips motion to John, telling him not to make any noise. No, don't do any noise. And then John, at the end of the song, was basically telling everybody to... They're basically, you know, giving her the business now. Oh, yes. Then we have another Starland vocal band mailbag, where we have David showing off the studio audience of the show, which is basically stock footage of a studio audience from, like, the 30s and the 40s. (laughs) And then it's time for Mark Russell again. And then another Proctor and Bergman skip, another Letterman and Altman skip, and then California Day performed at the cellar door, followed by another Proctor and Bergman skit, and then the group says goodnight. And then we go to episode four, where they finally make it to L.A. and perform, well, actually they've been in L.A. for a while, like we said, they're basically crisscrossing the country, but This one begins in L.A., where they perform Baby You Look Good to Me Tonight, outside of Tiny Nailers. I wonder, is Tiny Nailers still in Los Angeles? Probably not, but if it were, it'd be really historic. And then we have Margot meeting David as an outdoor man in a field where he's planting rabbits. And like many people plant vegetables, he's planting rabbits. And he digs one out of the ground, and Margot's like, I don't want to take that rabbit. I'm a vegetarian. So David just ends up tossing the stuffed rabbit off screen. It's it's weird. Then we have the band at Glen Echo Park exploring the history of the park, including the uh, Fun House, the Spook House, and the uh, Bumper Cars. Another bit with Merlin Parkins, Jeff Altman and David Letterman, and another Renaissance Bear. Then we go to Pepperdine University, where a bunch of students are listening to the band perform Mr. Wrong. Then the band is recording Ain't It the Fall 
in studio, which is basically Bill singing. Then we have all four of the regular performers together. David Letterman, Bill Proctor, Peter Bergman, and Jeff Altman. Another Mark Russell bit. And then the man who couldn't get away live at the cellar door in D.C. Then we go to episode five. Which begins with third-rate romance at the cellar door. Letterman and Altman performing a bit. John Carroll visiting the fun house at Glen Echo Park. Supposedly, he has a better sort of grasp of how to react at that fun house than Tappy did, because we see some expressions on his face. Oh, by the way, we finally see Jimmy Carter addressing us, and guess who's playing Jimmy Carter? Let me guess who's playing Jimmy Carter. I'll who's... take a guess. Go ahead, go ahead. Is it Rich Little? No. Oh my god, I'm curious, who's playing Jimmy Carter? Jeff Altman. Of course, of course it's Jeff Altman. Because of course he is. Now you see why he got the pink lady and Jeff job. <laughs> because uh, Jeff Altman, he'll do anything. Well, obviously. Obviously. Then we have the Proctor and Bergman comedy skit. Then we have the bands talking about Bill helping Emmy Lou Harris write Boulder to Birmingham. And if you've ever heard Emmy Lou Harris perform Boulder to Birmingham. It is like one of her signature songs. It's really, really good. And that song is performed by the band at Georgetown. Taffy and Margot meet Dave in another bit. Then we have another song, Too Long a Journey, performed in the studio. And at the last minute, Bill has to instruct John to move up to the microphone as he has the lead vocal, and it looks like Taffy tries to hide her face to show she isn't laughing. At this point, the band pretty much knows, yeah, we're on camera. We better just watch ourselves here. And then we have the news with David Letterman, Mark Russell, and the song Starland, which is actually a B-side to Afternoon Delight from the first album. And then we have the final episode from early September which features the song Fly Away, performed at Pepperdine, which Marco used to sing with her former band called Breakfast Again. The news with Letterman, the band at Glen Echo Park where Tappy and Margo sing side by side. A jam session at the cellar door where John does a Bob Dylan impression as Donald Duck. What? I guess we know who the funny guy in the group is. Then Letterman and Altman do the Dumb Waiter comedy sketch. Then the band performs American Tune, which is just as folksy as the 70s ever got, if you ask me. We have another bit with the bands listening to Jimmy at the White House. David and Jeff do another bit. And then Late Night Radio performed at Pepperdine. Another Phil Proctor and Peter Bergman comedy sketch. Another Mark Russell performance. And then to wrap the series up, we have a performance of St. Croix Silent Night with Bill explaining how the song came to be written. 
and the band performing it at the cellar door. And this is right before the band says goodbye for the last time. And that's the show, basically. It was six weeks of more or less the same cacophony of folk music and cutting-edge political humor. And like I said, I watched all six half hours, and I was just like, yeah, I see why this only got six weeks. I did a little bit of research as to why this show wasn't as well-received or why it didn't do as well as it should have done. And it all comes back to one of five reasons. Reason number one. Fans of the Starland Vocal Band didn't tune in for the comedy. You are a folk band fan. Are you really going to listen to the jokes? No, you're basically there for the music. And you're basically there for the group. And you're basically there to hear them perform Mostly stuff that are coming off of their uh, new album, which you're probably going to end up buying anyway. Reason number two. Fans of comedy didn't tune in for the band. I mean, we saw the uh, the comic bits that just involved the uh, players. They had a lot of chemistry with each other. Jeff Altman had a lot of chemistry with Dave Letterman. Bill Proctor had a lot of chemistry with Peter Bergman. But it seems like you are forcing the band into all of these crazy situations with all of these crazy people. And I'm not sure that they really knew how to react to all of that. Plus, most of the stuff that didn't involve David Letterman was just not funny. Number three. It was meant to be a summertime replacement. And they made it a point to hammer home the fact that this is a summertime show. But they didn't really say that it was only going to be for that one summer. It was just going to be, you know, a summertime thing. We're going to do it over the summer and then we're just going to move on with whatever. Reason number four. Look at the schedule. The Starland Vocal Band show was on at 8.30 p.m. on Sundays, which is basically one half hour after 60 minutes. And on a normal week, it would have been right after reruns of Rhoda. Mike, do you have uh, what else might have been on at that time? I do have the competition here, yes. Okay. On ABC, it went up against the second half hour of this isn't good, the six million dollar man. <clears throat> and on NBC, it's a little bit better because this would have been the waning weeks of this show's life. But again, when you hear the show name, it's like, yeah, it ran for like seven years, but this is like literally the last month or so of those seven years. By this time, it was just called Macmillan, but we know it better as Macmillan and Wife before the wife left. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. 
Oh shuck. <laughs> oh no, that's no, that was earlier. So yeah, the competition to say the least uh was difficult. And this is the third season of Rhoda leading into Starland Vocal Band show. I don't think it got like as big as ratings as the show it was spun off from until season four. Because I know it placed in the top twenty in season four, but not in season three. But it only lasted uh three months into its fifth season. It was canceled in late seventy-eight. Oh yeah. And then there was the fifth reason. Oh yeah. And the band imploded. Let's do a little bit of a comparison here. In 1976, the band released their self-titled premiere album with hit number 20, rocketed by Afternoon Delight, which hit number one in the U.S. and Canada, and number six in Australia, and number 18 in the U.K. Then they had minor hits with California Day and Hail Hail Rock and Roll, None of which hit the top 40, but all of which hit the uh, Billboard Hot 100. Then, in 1977, they finally released the follow-up, Rearview Mirror. Not a single single charted on the Hot 100, or anywhere for that matter. They tried again with Late Night Radio in 78, and 4x4 four four in 1980, but no record would ever be as popular as that one record. And the group did not find another commercial or critical hit after it. To the point where in 1981, not only did the group break up, Bill and Taffy got divorced. And the year after that, Margo and John, who would have been married for four years at that time, also got divorced. So yeah, the band pretty much imploded. And ultimately, the Starland vocal band went down in history as one of the greatest one-hit wonders of the 1970s. Thoughts, guys? You know what this show reminded me of? And you actually mentioned it earlier in this episode. It reminded me of the Hudson Brothers' Razzle Dazzle show. Oh, God. Well, it did, just because it just felt like, from what you've said, you almost couldn't like differentiate between the first show and the sixth show. And I know that was probably by design, but it just felt like there was little variety, if you will. Variety oh. in, in the, the skits and all that. Why do you have to remind me of the Hudson Brothers Razzle? Well, well, again, I'm just giving my initial reaction. So, you know, it, it may bother you, but the thing is, it's my initial thought. Yeah, at least this show had David Letterman on it. Yeah, that makes it way better than the Hudson Brothers Razzle Dazzle show. And like I said before, you can actually see where the seeds of greatness are being sown by David Letterman, especially in this mailbag segment. Because, like I said, some of these episodes had 
fan mail delivered by Dave Letterman in a mailman's garb, so to speak. Oh, yeah, that feels good. What a wonderful woman. Gotta get that recipe for crumb cake. One of my favorite occupants. Well, hi once again, home viewers. As that noticeable lull in the show indicates, it's time for the Starland Vocal Band Mailbag. Our first letter this week comes from Barbara Streisand of Hollywood, California. Hmm. Uh, Barbara did not include her age. Remember to put your age on your letters, boys and girls. And if you're not sure, ask mom and dad. Barbara writes, Dear Starland Vocal Band, How old are you? How much do you weigh? How tall are you? P.S. Is one of you really John Denver? <laughs> well, Barbara... Those are questions we get all the time, but believe me, they are the kind of questions we never get tired of answering. So here we go. The Starland Vocal Band is 113 years old. They tip the scales at a trim 538 pounds and are 22 feet 8 inches tall. In fact, if you laid the Starland Vocal Band end to end, and I've seen it done several times, they would be long enough to cause passersby to remark, call the authorities. And in answer to your last question, is one of the Starland vocal band really John Denver? <laughs> we hear this one all the time. No, one of them is not really John Denver, but we don't know which one. Well, that's all the time we have for the Starland vocal band mailbag this week. Remember, we cannot return envelopes, so send your letters in envelopes that you don't need anymore. You'll be glad you did. You could definitely see where David Letterman was going creatively. But yeah, Mike, it was your basic run-of-the-mill variety show, which didn't have much in the way of variety, a la the Hudson Brothers Razzle Dazzle show. I mean, the only thing that this show had over the Hudson Brothers was David Letterman, Jeff Altman, Philip Proctor, and Peter Bergman, and Mark Russell, and a pretty nifty-looking van. Oh yeah, and a song about getting a little something-something in the afternoon. David was probably hoping that this show would never again see the light of day, and nowadays, I don't think he minds because he's made a legendary career for himself, but in the last three years, all six of these episodes have been uploaded to YouTube after years of being classified as lost media. So you can actually go to Starland and more, and you can watch all six episodes. Of course, some of them have Afternoon Delight ripped out of them for copyright reasons, and understandably so. But all six episodes will be there as of the time of this recording. Anything else? That's it. That's it. Yeah. Starland Vocal Band, one of the greatest one-hit wonders of the 1970s. David Letterman, one of the greatest comic minds of our generation. Jeff Altman, he would go on to star in a show with Pink Lady. Bill Proctor, he would do three weeks of Match Game Hollywood Squares Hour. Peter Bergman, he would keep writing. But this show would continue to be a thing on TV. Oh, yeah, and Mark Russell made a name for himself on PBS. Cannot forget that. Oh, and Chico, Mark Russell is also on a week of Match Game Hollywood Squares. Ooh, I was today years old when I learned that. I haven't seen the later episodes. I really haven't. I've been sleeping. It wasn't a later episode. 
It was like late 83, early 84, I believe. Okay, now I remember the episode. I did see them. Wow! Hey, guys, one more thing I want to add since we're on a Mash Game Hollywood Squares kick. The week that Mark Russell was on, Phil Proctor was on too. So you had two people from this show on Mash Game Hollywood Squares. Uh, it was actually early January of 84. I think it was the week before Bill Cullen was on. Now I definitely remember that week. Well, it's really quite simple. It's kind of like... Gonna find my baby, gonna hold her tight, gonna grab some afternoon delight. My motto's always been, when it's right, it's right. Why wait until the middle of a cold, dark night? When everything's a little clearer in the light of day. And we know the night is always gonna be here anyway. Picking up, just working up my appetite. Looking forward to a little afternoon delight. Rubbing sticks and stones together, make a spark ignite. And the thought of loving you is getting so exciting. Sky rockets in flight. Woo! Afternoon delight. Whoop. You guys have it, I think. Huh. Afternoon delight. I don't know, Ron. That sounds kind of crazy. Sounds like you have mental problems, man. Yeah, you got mental problems, man. Yeah, it really does. Man. Afternoon Delight. Episode 322. Submission number 253. The McLean Stevenson Show. The McLean Stevenson Show aired on the NBC television network from December 1st, 1976 to March 23rd of 1977 for 12 episodes, two of which went unaired. Hello, Mac, you're living on love. It's a way in life. Got a little boy grin. Are you going to be our best friend? You know, Mac, you age like wine with your own sweet touch and you love it so much you're going to live it over again. Hello, Mac. You've got a heart of gold, so be good to yourself tonight. Hello, Mac. You're on a winning streak, and your favorite to win, and you might. You just might. Hang on, Mac. Hold on, Mac. It has been way too long since we mentioned McLean Stevenson on this show, hasn't it? I think the last episode we did that fully involved McLean was Condo. Then that was what? A little over a year and a half ago, maybe? That was summer of 2020. It seemed like for a while, McLean Stevenson was the patron saint of this podcast. I mean, we had a whole month devoted to his many failures for crying out tears. But we haven't covered this one yet, have we? We were waiting for a special occasion to do it. And, well, McLean's birthday is November 14th. So this would have been his 95th birthday on November 14th. Okay. Like we said in any show involving McLean Stevenson, our friend here seems to have had his best successes while he was playing Lieutenant Colonel Henry Blake on MASH. And in 1975, he decided to leave 
the 4077 for, I guess, what he saw at the time was greener pastures over at NBC. We'll never forget how he left that day. His plane was shot over the Sea of Japan. It spun in. There were no survivors. Anyway, he was then signed to a one-year contract by NBC after doing so, and that led to him being able to star and produce and develop his own vehicle. That was a variety show in November. Hey, hey, Chuck Testa, did, did that last any longer than MASH? Nope. Alright, well, back to the drawing board where somebody, namely Norman Barish and Carol Moore, approached McLean with another idea. No, it wasn't another variety show. It was a sitcom. Partly based on his life, but mostly based on the fact that he was just this everyman being pulled in several directions by several different people. This show would center on an owner of a hardware store in McLean Stevenson's actual hometown of Evanston, Illinois. But he would be living with his wife, his two grown children, one going to school and one getting over divorce. The divorcee's two other children, and McLean Stevenson's mother-in-law. This was basically Full House before Full House. NBC liked it, McLean liked it, and we were off and running for a January 1977 release. In fact, they shot the first seven episodes for that release, and then something happened at NBC in 1976. Basically, it was a case of cleaning house. And I want to say this was like a year or two before Fred Silverman, the master cleaner of the clean house, came in. On June 18, 1975, NBC, having just launched a news and information service, was basically hemorrhaging money. That operation did not last through 1977. As for the television side, they had hits like Adam 12, Rowan and Martin's Lappin, Ironside, and The Flip Wilson Show, but none of them pretty much made their way to the mid-70s where this show would show up. In fact, we would get such new shows as The Mystery Movie, Sanford and Son, Chico and the Man, Little House on the Prairie, The Midnight Special, The Rockford Files, Policewoman, and Emergency, all of which were doing very well for themselves. But under new president Herbert Schlosser, the NBC television network decided to go for younger demographics with movies, miniseries, and specials, all of which fetched a really hefty dime. I mean, 
these were supposedly event shows. If you remember a commercial for something called Centennial, which was based on a book and perhaps one of the most expensive series to be produced at that time, how did that do? Not only did it not attract younger viewers, it alienated the older viewers. In fact, all of the shows that were introduced in the fall of 1975 were canceled. We also had the first season of Saturday Night, which would be, of course, NBC's Saturday Night, developed by Lord Michaels and Dick Ebersol as a replacement for reruns of Carson. And remember, the reason it was called NBC Saturday Night was because Saturday Night Live, the title was taken by EBC's Saturday Night Live with Howard Cosell. Yep, and that would be the only breakout success of 1975. But they did have one ace in the hole, and hopefully people who still watch MASH and still enjoy MASH would want to see more of McLean Stevenson in another vehicle, particularly in a vehicle that he had his hands in, that he helped shape and mold and direct and guide. That didn't happen, though, did it? We had a changing of the guard at NBC, and they decided that they took one look at the seven episodes that were painstakingly crafted by all of these talented individuals and decided now they scrapped them all and they started from scratch. So they basically had to crank out an entire series they thought they had until January. The program execs not only decided to replace an actor on the show, but they decided, hey, you're not launching in January. You're launching on December 1st. Oh my god! Oh my... You know this is a disaster when the network's like, the first seven episodes, they all suck, and by the way, you're replacing one of the actors. And by the way, remember when you said you had until January? Now you have until December. You have 11 months. Good luck. This is McLean Stevenson talking. This is an interview with the UPI as it appeared in the Millville Daily. We shot the first seven episodes, and then NBC changed program executives. The new guys didn't like one of the actors and replaced him with another. They scrapped the first seven episodes and started from scratch. Do you know what that does to a cast? Still, we weren't too upset. We thought we had plenty of time because we were going to air in January. Suddenly, they told us we'd go on December 1st. We've been working morning, noon, and night ever since. The minute we finish a show, it's on the air. We're running as fast as we can. Nobody knows when or if we'll ever catch up. And this is at a time where he was doing a nightclub stand 
as the opening act for Glenn Campbell at the Las Vegas Hilton. So, suffice it to say, he was busy. And he was accustomed to being busy. So, where did it go wrong? How did it go wrong? And what would become of the deal with McLean Stevenson and NBC afterwards? Those are all good questions, and hopefully we'll have the answer to them in the next few moments. But first, let's talk about the show. Like we said, McLean Stevenson played Mac Ferguson, who is the owner of a hardware store in Illinois, and the, I don't want to say put-upon husband, but that's the only thing I can think of that describes him, the put-upon husband of his wife Peggy and his two grown children, Janet and Chris. Chris has moved back home to go to school, and Janet's moved back home to get over a divorce. And she's brought her two children, David and Jason. Rounding out this pre-full house, full house, Grandma Ferguson, Mac's mother-in-law. Uh, let's talk about who played who on this show. Peggy Ferguson was played by Barbara Stewart, and the longest thing I saw on IMDb was 12 episodes of Pete and Gladys, 12 out of 72. She was a recurring character there. She might not have been in much, but she's best known as the ex-wife of Dick Godier. Oh, yeah. Now I remember her. Oh, yeah. Oh, big role for her, though. In 1980, she was Mrs. Kramer in Airplane. Playing Janet was Anne Ryman, who would be best known for, well, not much. I mean, she was basically a that woman in that thing during the 70s. She's been on Hawaii Five-0, Petrocelli, Police Story. She had an uncredited role as a nurse in Jaws in 1975, but that's pretty much it. She didn't really do much before this show and hasn't done much since. Her last credited role was as Mavis in Firestorm 72 Hours in Oakland, the May 4 TV movie in 1993. And before that, she was in an episode of Midnight Caller on NBC. Playing the first Chris Ferguson was an actor by the name of Andrew Parks. He would survive the cut from episode four, but he would find himself on things like Homicide, Angel. He was on three episodes of Room 222 before this. So. But the guy they got to replace him, Steve Neville, he was the guy who replaced Andrew Parks as Chris. He's been on a little bit more. He played... Steve in 11 episodes of Hope and Gloria in 1995 and 1996. And recently, he would be another guy named Steve in Kaplan's Corner, whatever that is. What is Kaplan's Corner? 
a group of struggling actors who inherit an employment agency from their departed friend, Marvin Kaplan, a well-known character actor. The employment office is located on the upstairs of a theater and comes with a maintenance man. The agency specializes in finding jobs for out-of-work actors while they're waiting for their next gig. And Chris Pine's daddy was apparently in five episodes of this, whatever it is. No, seriously, what the heck is this? Hold on. You said Chris Pine's dad was in this? I said Chris Pine's daddy was in this. Oh, neat! So apparently it was on Prime Video. Didn't know that, but okay. Oh, I know why it's on Prime Video, because it was on Roku before. Okay. Anyway, back to the cast here. Playing David Ferguson is David Hollander, who was best known as the young boy with coffee on 1980s Airplane, but is the music editor and music supervisor on Adult Swim's Black Dynamite. And other shows like My Gym Partner's a Monkey, Megas XLR, and the What a Cartoon Show. But he most notably played Wesley Sarnak in all 22 episodes of Call to Glory, which we mentioned in the Street Hawk episode. It was more or less the show that caused Street Hawk to get cancelled, if you remember that episode. Playing the role of Jason Ferguson is Jason Whitney, and this would be his only credit. And then rounding out the cast as Grandma Ferguson is Madge West, who also did not have a fruitful career for herself. I think she's had exactly one role before this as Mrs. Klatt in the TV movie of Look Homeward Angel. But yeah, that's the cast. McLean Stevenson, Barbara Stewart, and several other people. Several other people. But the guest stars they got on these episodes. Yowza. Episode 1. Who do you trust? Mac and his family help a doubt on his luck would-be burglar and his pregnant wife. And the first episode is on YouTube, so if you want to watch it, uh, you can, but I watched maybe 10 minutes of it, and I'm like... This was the best they could do for the first episode of the show? Remember, Greg, they were rushing to finish this on time. But they had 11 months. They had 11 months. They couldn't figure out a better first episode to get the people interested than this. No, they could not. And you know what's so funny? If you watch the premiere episode on YouTube... Because this was taped off of Channel 4 in New York. There's a plot for Visit the Museum of Natural History. It's like NBC is basically saying, you could do so much better than watch this. Oh, dear. But look who they got to write this episode. The teleplay was written by Lloyd Garver, but the actual story came from the minds of Dennis Palumbo and Mark Avanier. Veritable television legend, Mark Avanier. And even they couldn't save it. And you know who they got to play the burglar Lenny? Oh, yes, I do know who they got to play the burglar Lenny. Jerry Hauser. Yes. 
Jerry Hauser, who we already talked about in the Brady Brides. And you know what? Maybe making a case for the show Hall of Fame. <laughs> Maybe. And I'm going to use your words, Greg. Not even he could save this show. No. Jerry Hauser could not save this show. Nothing could save this show. Because it was so terrible. And then in a role as Debbie, we had Janice Blythe, who is known for playing Ruby in the original The Hills Have Eyes. And then seven years later, playing Rachel and Ruby in the sequel, The Hills Have Eyes 2. Episode 2, Oldie But Goodie. Mac finds out his daughter Janet is dating Lloyd, a man in his age group. After his objections are ignored, Mac takes more drastic actions to end the romance. You know what someone's reaction would be when they heard that plot? Uh-oh! Uh-oh. <laughs> Wait till you hear who played Lloyd. Who played Lloyd? I'm ready. I'm sitting down. Who played You're Lloyd? Sitting, are you sitting down? Yes. Are you ready for this? Richard Mulligan. <laughs> Obviously a good year before soap. Obviously. <laughs> Richard Mulligan! Oh my god. Well, I gotta... <laughs> His thing. career would get better. His no. career would get better, but I'm going to be quite honest. Richard Mulligan, for a man of his age, is kind of a very handsome man, if you think about it. He is a handsome man. Mike, you'd agree, right? Richard Mulligan, pretty handsome man for his age. No? I don't see it. <laughs> he, he does nothing for me. Oh, oh dear. Okay. Maybe it's just because when I think of Richard Mulligan, he was a little wackadoodle on soap. Yeah, yeah but he hasn't been good looking. It. I don't think he so. He played he, it so well. Though. Well, well but, yeah, but but also, like I said, he, he may have been a wackadoodle on soap, but he doesn't do anything to turn me on. I'm sorry. I'm not oh. talking about. <laughs> <laughs> well, what but... are you talking about then? Now I want to know what he's talking about. <laughs> you, 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 you said, isn't he a, a, a halfway decent looking guy? He doesn't do jack for me. <laughs> okay, moving on. <laughs> Episode three, going his way. Mac has an unexpected guess when son Jeff brings home a new age guru whose ideas clash with Mac's. Gee, I haven't heard that one before. I thought we covered that in the condo episode. Anyway, Janet acquires a dog which causes complications in the household. Playing the role of the guru, Mr. Sutton, Will Albert, who played Sammy Kahn in Frost Nixon and Lieutenant Robbie in Private Benjamin. Oh, Private Benjamin. So this is where Mike's going to say, oh, I don't like Eileen Brennan. Oh, 
All right, Mike, get it out of your system. Now, I'm sorry. I was uh, spending too much time thinking about how gorgeous Richard Mulligan is. <sighs> but play Mrs. Swenson, another character. Lonnie Anderson. Oh, yes, Lonnie Anderson. A good two years before WKRP. But hey, in this episode playing Larry, oddly enough, playing Larry in this episode is John Volstad. He didn't play Larry, but he played not his brother Daryl. He was the other brother Daryl on Newhart. You remember? I'm Larry. This is my brother Daryl. This is my other brother Daryl. He was the other brother Daryl. The other brother Daryl. Not Daryl. The other brother named Daryl. The other brother named Daryl, right. See, everyone thinks about Daryl. Nobody thinks about the poor other brother named Daryl. I'm beginning to think that Larry was the new age guru that Jeff brought home. He might as well have been. Episode 4. Max Fatal Charm. One of Janet's divorced friends, Linda, drops by and is attracted to Father Mac. Flattered by the attention, Mac begins to wonder if he is capable of infidelity. As we established in the last episode, Mac is a staunch Republican. So, that's all I'm going to say about that. Playing the role of Linda, who is attracted to Mac, is Nancy Stevens, who would have been best known in the first two Halloween movies as Marion, and also in Halloween H2O 20 years later, reprising the role. And she also played the same role in Halloween Kills. But she wasn't in Halloween Ends, though. Or the 2018 Halloween. And she also wasn't in Rob Zombie's Halloween. Well, that's probably a good thing. Oh, uh, yeah, that's, that's definitely a good thing. Episode 5, The Great Rift. Mac and Peggy have a huge fight after Peggy accuses her husband of not dealing honestly with his feelings. Mac leaves the house in anger and manages to get himself into trouble. And playing a role as Charlene in this episode, one of Tom and Abby Bradford's Eight Kids, Susan Richardson. Oh, that's fantastic. Susan Richardson. She was on Pyramid. She did all the shows. Yeah, she did the circuit back then. I have to wonder how long she was in the circuit. It's like, her last episode of Super Password was in 87. So when did 8 is enough from here? 77? So probably a good decade. 73. Or, no, 77, my mistake. You're right. Of course I'm right. Because Mork Hamill was in the pilot of 8 is Enough, and he obviously couldn't do that because he was in Star Wars. Yeah. So they replaced him with Grant Goody. Mark Hamill went on to play the Joker on Batman the Animated Series. What has Grant Goody ever done? He was in Twin Peaks to Return! I'll shut up then. Episode 6. Wait, 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 wait. Now, you didn't let me chime in with what does okay. Grant Goody ever do. Okay. He was on a week of few with Marilyn McCoo. Okay, episode 8. I'm sorry. Or episode 7 or episode <laughs> I was, 6 I was or busy, whatever. I was busy doing the wrong glass face. 
you're thinking about Richard Mulligan too? Okay, good. <laughs> Episode six. Janet leaves home. Janet takes the kids and moves out, tired of living under her parents' roof. Mac and Peggy learn that she has moved to a scary part of town with her home, a dump, and a peeping Tom as a neighbor. Uh-oh! Uh-oh. Hold on a second. Was George McFly the neighbor? Thank God, no. He's a peeping Tom. Greg, I want you to get ready here. Okay. Playing the role of George was a man by the name of Christopher Beaumont, who is known less for being a writer on Die Gang and Pensacola Wings of Gold, and more for being the second Mr. Gloria Loring. And we all know who the first Mr. Gloria Loring was. <laughs> oh, hold on. I need to get that. Yellow. <laughs> Alan, we were just talking about your ex-wife. Oh, yeah. Why are you talking about my ex-wife, guys? Oh, because her new husband was on this show with McLean Stevenson. What? My ex-wife's new husband was on this piece of crap? <laughs> yeah, he was on... Hey, McLean Stevenson was a nice person. Oh, yes, he was. Yeah. Yo, he, yo uh, I was on the bench game at Squares Hour, just like him. Yeah, I believe you were married to Gloria Loring at the time, weren't you? Yes, I was. Yeah. Did you know that Robin Thicke was Chris Beaumont's stepson? Of course I knew that, you son of a bitch. <laughs> I just wanted to bring up Robin Thicke once. Okay, where would you want to bring up my son? I don't know. Because you felt like it? Hey, it felt right. What can I say? Hey, guys, I want to tell you about something I'm going to be doing. Uh, Hey, guys, you know what I'm going to be doing? Like, something for Crystal Light? Ooh, ooh. Ooh, are you talking about the the thing with the uh, uh, aerobics and the people in the skin-tight lycra? Yeah, that's right. I'm going to be doing that. I'm going to be doing aerobics sponsored by Crystal Light. I'm going to be hosting that. Good, I found something to get my mind off of Richard Mulligan. Thank you, Alan. <laughs> Why would you be thinking about Richard Mulligan, Mike? <laughs> that's not important, Alan. Right. That, that, that's not important. <laughs> I'll give you the answer to that and more important questions on the next episode of Soap. <laughs> well, um, if you want to get started on that whole crystal light thing, I'm not going to sit here and waste your time. All right. But I'll tell you, Rubik's are like the big thing here in the 80s. Hey, I know. Hey, I'm a child of the 80s. I know this. Yeah, that's damn straight. Hey, you haven't seen aerobics until you've seen uh, Mickey Mouse and Minnie Mouse in full body costumes doing aerobics. What? Mickey Mouse doing aerobics? That's going to be one of the wildest things I've ever heard. You're not ready for it, man. Oh, well, apparently You're I'm not. not. You're not. Ooh. You're not ready for it. No. Okay, well, I got to get back in the... Uh, the tortoise, and I gotta hang up this phone call. Uh, All right. 
I'll see you later, guys. I'll see you on the next reference. All right. Hey, Mike, you think I should have told him what happens in 30 years to that video? No. Playing the role of Susan, Sandra Kearns, a.k.a. the second mother in the second family that Charles was in charge of. We're halfway through the episodes. It's a great time to take a little commercial break. Stay tuned. We'll be back in a few minutes. Ah, Marcel! I would like your very finest cheese. If you appreciate great cheese taste, you'll like nacho cheese-flavored Doritos brand tortilla chips. Nacho cheese flavor. The crunch says Doritos. The flavor says cheese. Nacho cheese Doritos brand tortilla chips. One of three great flavors. This is NBC News Update. Brought to you by American Express Traveler's Checks. Here is Tom Snyder. Good evening. Gary Gilmore is to die by firing squad Monday, two days after he's 36. That's what he wants, but somebody might appeal. NBC News correspondent Irving R. Levine says Soviet leader Brezhnev told Treasury Secretary Simon he won't needle Jimmy Carter. Economic indicators stayed level in October after two bad drops. The watchword now, cautious optimism. Jose Lopez Portillo is Mexico's new president, facing restless peasants, shrunken pesos, and big debts there. Angola, finally a member of the United Nations tonight. At Cape Canaveral, they knocked down the old gantry from which the first astronauts flew. And President Ford's suburban Washington home is for sale. He wants $137,000. He paid $34,000, but there is a pool. That's tonight's update from NBC News, New York. The worst thing that can happen on vacation is to lose your money. Don't take chances. Carry American Express traveler's checks. Don't leave home without them. George C. Scott and Trish Vanderveer star in Hallmark Hall of Fame's stunning new special, Beauty and the Beast, a bizarre love affair between a beautiful woman and a strange and passionate man-beast. Beauty and the Beast, Friday at 8.30, 7.30 Central and Mountain Time on NBC. Back to the show. Episode 7, Mac and Big Mac. Mac's father, Big Mac, arrives for a stay and proceeds to make the house his makeover project, to Peggy's displeasure. Big Mac turns his attention to the hardware store, and Mac has a talk with his dad that he's been avoiding. Playing the role of Big Mac is Malcolm Atterbury, who you might have remembered as Deputy Al Malone in Alfred Hitchcock's Magnum Opus, The Birds. Chico, when you said Mac and Big Mac, I was thinking, was that the sequel to Mac and Me? <laughs> oh, no. Mac is enough eating competition to eat all the Big Macs as possible. That would have been the sequel. You would have been McLean the coach. would never go for that, though. I'm not talking about McLean Stevenson. I'm talking about the alien puppet Mac from Mac and Me. <laughs> oh, you didn't see it, but Chico was doing the Mac face from Mac and Me. <laughs> Why? <laughs> 
And by the way, please go in the archives and listen to the Mac and Me live show that me and Mike did. Because that was... That was the stupidest live show we ever did, but holy crap, was that hilarious. Chico, I'm so sad you missed it, but oh god. Episode 8, What Makes Mac Run? A city council seat unexpectedly opens and his family convinces Mac to try for it. A committee is selecting the next candidate and Mac must convince them he is the best choice. I got some news for you. He's not the best choice for the job. Just look at McLean Stevenson. No, he's not fit for this. No. Anyway, a couple of names in this episode. Playing Mrs. Alcott was Carol Arthur, who you would probably remember as the complaining villager in Robin Hood Men in Tights, Harriet Johnston in Blazing Saddles, and... Oh, gosh. What? What are you O'Conning? A villager in Dracula, dead and loving it. Ah, Dracula, dead and loving it, with Leslie Nielsen. I'm guessing she's one of the people on that council who's looking for a candidate. Playing another one of those women, Mrs. Turner, would be Ruth Cobart, who was a choir nun in both Sister Act movies and played Miss Jones in the 1967 original version of How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying. But she was also Mrs. Finley in previous entry, Life with Lucy. You want to talk about making the rounds? She did it all. Episode 9, Grandma's Secret. Grandma's been dating a dapper captain, which pleases Mac and Peggy. The announcement that the two are to get married and move into an already crowded house changes their attitude. Oh, God. Guys. 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 We do have a return of Malcolm Atterbury as Big Mac Ferguson, but guess who plays the captain? Edward Andrews. Let's just say he's a couple of months away from being the captain of something else. The Super Train. Oh, yes! He's the captain of the Super Train. <laughs> or I guess he would say the chief engineer, but, you know, when you have a train that has a control room that looks like it's out of the USS Enterprise, you can't help but use the verbiage. What can I say? Now, hold on a second. Now, Mike, I know back when we did Super Train, you explained, why didn't they have any NBC stars on Super Train? You know what? They could have had McLean on Super Train. It would have been great. It would have just fit like a glove. But he doesn't fit the requirement of an NBC star. But he was on Hello Larry at the time, Mike. Again, he doesn't pass the hurdle of star. But I'm trying to say you complain about why didn't NBC promote their own stars on Super Train? I gave you an example. Okay, that's fair. But hey, I want to give the capsule for this episode that I have because um, I just like the way it's phrased. So uh, this is the one about uh, Grams and the tugboat captain. Yes. 
Okay. I'm ready. I'm all I'm re- I'm sitting down. Here we go. Oh, uh, uh, the, the Greg heard this earlier, and just the way this is written, I, I need to share this. All right. Grams announces her engagement to a retired tugboat captain, and Mac looks forward to having an extra room and one less mouth to feed, but the Commodore has a surprise for him. You won't believe what happened. You, you won't. You won't believe what happens. Nope. That's the new hilarity ensues. What, you won't believe what happens? Yes! <laughs> oh my gosh. Welcome to the show, Corky. Next, we have Money Troubles. Yeah, when the captain moves in, you get Money Troubles. That's basically what happens afterwards. No. When Mac complains too often about the bills, Janet gets a job as a cocktail waitress. Her dad, Mac, isn't pleased at her choice of work establishments. Especially when one of her co-workers is named Fanny. By the way, Fanny is played by Beverly Sanders, who we will cover in January on another listener-requested show. We'll let that be a surprise for now. But she was also known as a recurring character, six episodes worth, as Susan Alborn in Rhoda. Nowadays, she could have been seen on three episodes of Entourage. Two as Eric's receptionist and one as a lady named Jane. Oh, and fun fact, Andrew Parks returns to the show as a character named Alan. No mention is made of him looking like a son from a previous life. And now we begin the episodes that did not make the air. The first one, Strangers in the Night. With some difficulty, Mac and Peggy get the house to themselves for a quiet romantic anniversary celebration. Two of Alan's friends from the commune show up and ruin the evening. Unfortunately, we do not know who those people are or who played them because they are not on IMDb. Sorry. Episode 12, Say It Isn't So. Peggy announces to the family that she may be pregnant. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. And that's it. That's the show. Another fun fact, we talked about how this show is put together, produced by uh, McLean Stevenson, we also have another name producing this show. Are you ready for this? Monty Hall. Well, I guess it makes sense, considering McLean would later work with his daughter on Hello Larry. Yep. I did find an interesting interview with Monty Hall talking about McLean Stevenson. Oh? Yes, I did. If we could get a soundbite on your thoughts, not on the show you did, but on on the person, uh, McLean Stevenson. Very hard to work with. Very hard to work with on MASH, as Larry Gilbar told me. Uh, he wanted he wanted out of mash. He wanted a series of his own, and I sold my first 
comedy sitcom. I, I sold it to um, NBC, as you know. And I used um, William Wyndham in a starring role, a fine actor. John McMahon at NBC called me and says, Monty, we have a contract with McLean Stevenson. You use McLean Stevenson, you got a deal. Just like I had with Bob Hilton having to call him one day, it was a sad point, it was a sad day for me to call William Wyndham and tell him, I got to sell the show, Bill. And uh, you know, you can have friendships and uh, admiration and all that, but I got to sell the show. So I got to take McLean Stevenson, which turned out to be a big mistake. Well, McLean changed every script. McLean changed every person, every character in the pilot. He fired them all, he brought his own people in. And he wanted all the laughs. And you know, the secret of sitcoms is you have to have ensemble. Ensemble. Cheers, Taxi, every show. Seinfeld. Seinfeld made umpteen zillion dollars because he let the other three people be stars. McLean didn't want anybody else to have a laugh. And that's, that's a, the, the sad story on any sitcom is you cannot be in one and everybody else getting no laughs at all. My daughter did a show with um, with um, Wind Beneath My my Wings. What's her name? Bette Midler. Thank you. My daughter did a series with Bette Midler. Bette Midler wanted every laugh. You cannot be successful if you are going to be 30 minutes of you. You have to build up all the people around you. Jack Benny told me a great story. I met Jack Benny, who was... A, a very dear friend. I was having lunch with him one day and he said, Marty, you know, Jack Benny taught, Marty, I watch your show every day. His Mary loves the show and I love the show. And he says, you know, what I notice about your show is that you never take a close-up and you own the show. And I said, Jack, I don't take a close-up because the drama of the show is in the contestant's reaction. The door opens, let's get a look on her face. Not my face. The box is revealed. What does she see? What she won? I want to see her reaction. That's the only close-up on the show. There's a two-shot of the contestant myself. Fine. But when the reveal comes, the camera has to go in on her and see her reaction when she wins or loses the card. Well, at this point, I'd ask, okay, where did the show go wrong? But I think Monty pretty much summed it up. It's like, this is the McLean Stevenson show, but there had to be, like, a chemistry within everybody involved. And McLean Stevenson just had to be front and center for everything. I mean, you have what the producers told McLean, you had what Monty told McLean, you have all this together, it seems like it was a disaster from the start, almost. Pretty much. And I haven't even looked at the schedule yet. Originally, the McLean Stevenson show aired on Wednesday nights at 8.30 p.m. after CPO Sharkey, but before Sirota's Court, which we've referred to in the past. It was up against, and this isn't good, the second half hour of The Bionic Woman and The Jeffersons. Oh, that's bad. Oh. You're not going to get any viewers up with those two. You're just not. 
it gets a little bit better because in mid to late January of 77, the Jeffersons is gone. But in its place is a show called The Jacksons. It was a variety show with the Jackson 5. Oh! It didn't run very long. Uh, but yeah, it, it was uh, it had uh, Michael and Marlon and Tito and Jackie and Randy and LaToya and Janet. And Jermaine, and don't forget whole... that Jermaine. No, Jermaine's not listed here. Jermaine's not listed? That's an insult. I'm pretty sure Jermaine was on that show. I don't know. I don't... I, I'm looking at IMDb. It's... I, I One person who was on two episodes was David Letterman. We just talked about him last episode. Oh my God. Oh, boy. You know what I bet David said to Michael? Uh, you got any gum? Oh, boy. But, yeah, it didn't last all that long. Uh, it was uh, canceled uh, early March of 77. So take it for what it's worth. But then later on in the run, it moved from 8.30 to 9.30. It did go up against the second half hour of the uh, Wednesday night movie on CBS. But on ABC, it went up against the second half hour of Beretta. Ooh. I'm actually looking at a schedule from March 3rd, 1977, which was a Thursday. It was up against uh, the Tony Randall show on ABC. But you know what it was up against on CBS? The second half hour of 5-0, y'all. Well, 5-0 at that point would have been like the, what, ninth season? So uh, it lasted about three more years. I think it uh, went off the air in 80. So it, it, I don't want to say it's in its waning days, but but yeah, it's in the late 70s now. So it, it's sort of petering out. Wednesday and Thursday was just not NBC's night, and unfortunately, that was probably the only place they could have put that show. You're not going to give up a slot besides Sanford and Son unless you have a whole lot of promise. And judging from what I just heard, there was no promise at all. And I think my thoughts about this show can be best summed up by Jimmy Walker in this clip from the Archive of American Television talking about Poland in this rather funny moment from Hollywood Squares. As it went on, he got more bitter and angry and that gay, nasty thing. And it was so funny. And the best line, whether you use this line or not, the best line he ever had, and you got to remember, it's way back in the 70s. So remember that. Mm. Way back in the 70s. The young guys won't know, but this line crush the audience. Peter says, okay, Paul, it has failed in the United States twice. It's failed in France three times. It's failed in England three times. It's failed in Russia six times. It has failed in Europe seven times over, you know, over the years. It is now coming back to the United States. It has failed twice here. What is it? He says, the McLean Stevenson show. <laughs> I, they had to stop tape. It got such a big laugh. Thanks, Paul. The McLean Stevenson show. I don't think we've ever had two 
archive interviews on a podcast episode before, have we? No, that's a first. This is a historic moment! But, yeah. After a few weeks on Wednesday nights at 8.30, and then Wednesday nights at 9.30, and then one week on Thursday night at 9.30, the McLean-Stevenson show was one of the many things on TV that McLean Stevenson insisted on being the center of attention to. But it would not be the last, obviously. We haven't even covered his worst show ever. And I'm going to leave it at that. But in the meantime, we could leave you to visit our website. It was a thing on TV.com. You have all of our episodes, all of our mini-sodes, all of our live watches. Of course, we're all also available where fine podcasts can be streamed. Don't forget to like, rate, review. Five stars only because positive vibes only. And if you're on YouTube, hit the notification bell so you can stay up to date on all of our future entries. Like a couple of sort of compilation episodes we have in store next week. I think you're going to enjoy these. But for now, for Mike, for Greg, I'm Chico. Thank you so much for listening. Please be kind to each other, and we'll see you for the next one. Wow! Next time on It Was a Thing on TV. Are you sick and tired of where you are, working hard for years for nothing? Are you excited about watching my student making a fortune on TV? You know, many of these people started out with little or no cash and no credit, no experience. Do you have a guts to step out of where you are to achieve your financial freedom? Then come to my three hours success and real estate investing seminar. The cover charge for this seminar is not $1,000. It's not even $500. It's not even $100. The cover charge, my friend, is free. Free. And if you're not willing to spend three free hours to learn from a self-made millionaire to maximize your opportunity, you deserve to be broke. <laughs>